This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Be sure to check out and subscribe to my other podcast, Thinking and Doing, where I examine logical fallacy, cognitive bias, stoic teachings, and tips on being better at life. Uh, Before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around. To schedule, go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Okay. I am officially fully set up now. Okay. Right. I am good to go. Okay. Woo. Well, you know, it wouldn't be 2020 without some kind of problem interrupting everything we're trying to do. <laughs> there we go. And for me, technical problems are just a way of life. So, yeah. Well, good to chat. Yeah, good to chat. Good to meet you. Um, I would say we're probably total strangers. We just sort of got connected through this uh, matchmaker.fm. Is this a service you've used for a while? I've only chatted with one other person from there so far. No, I definitely haven't used it for a while. Um, I, I, I don't even know. I'm not. This sounds awful. I'm not even completely sure how it is that I got connected with Matchmaker. Is it related to podcast.co? I don't know. I just got an email just out of the blue. Okay. They probably just yeah. um, farmed, you know, Apple podcast lists or something and, and yeah, find uh, administrator yeah. emails and send, you know, their marketing to that. And I thought it was interesting. So I set it up. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know I have successfully booked, I think, a, a healthy handful of podcasts through this. It's nice. I mean, people are open to having you pitch them, which I appreciate because you know, going cold, um, you know, sometimes can feel uncomfortable and, and not be very effective. So I, I found it to be worth its while. I did buy up for the year, whatever, so I could have basically endless contacts and it'll be worth it this year. We'll see if they're, if they don't have a lot of cycling of new or, or new additions, then it won't be worth it ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, my podcast is, is, is really just more, uh, I guess, a philosophical hobby really, you know, yeah. it's, it's, you yeah. know, it's a labor of love yeah. for me, you know, and I, yeah. um, usually people I've talked to are people that I've known in some way, you know, through Facebook or something, but I thought, you know, let's maybe get some total strangers on here just to say hi and see where it goes. So, yeah, well, thanks for taking the leap and the chance on me. I did listen to some of your latest episodes. So that was really helpful for me to get a feel for where you're coming from. And I can appreciate that philosophy and I like your just sort of straightforward plain approach or not plain I don't mean plain I mean you know what I mean straightforward like it's you you know it's it's very yeah. authentic and I appreciate that so yeah yeah so what do you well, want it's, to it's fun yeah what do you want to accomplish with our conversation or what topic or direction is most important for you to keep in with the theme of your podcast overall well, you did you did mention um, some things about uh, your kids and what they're mm-hmm. doing for school and some of your ideas on how yeah. government schooling is failing a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's kind of right up my alley. Um, our kids aren't in school, um, and we can maybe talk get into that a little bit later on. But the idea that government schools are failing kids because of, like you say, the one size fits all, personally, mm-hmm. I take that. I take that much broader than just schools. That's kind of, you know, government in a mm-hmm. nutshell. It's one size fits all. And that's why we have so much, mm-hmm. uh, so much division and, um, you know, anger and hate towards one another because at the end of the day, we're There's arguing over way, things right. that one solution right. is going to be forced on everybody. So that's, you know, right. a much larger right. complaint. But 
As far as school goes, um, I don't know. What are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, so I actually work with an assessment company that has done a tremendous amount of research, and they've actually proven that school only works for 20% of kids. So 80% of kids, by a little or a lot, learn differently than the way they're expected to learn. And the fallout from that is that those kids, those misfits, are um, we see have lower self-efficacy, and that impacts mental health. So they're more prone to depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. And, um, and certainly, you know, they're just self-worth is impacted. So it's very scary and very consequential when we design a system that at the start, the majority of the students fail. So that's, that's why I don't, I don't feel good about it, but it's not my opinion. It's proof. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, definitely. That's, uh, so I think that's um, a great message to talk about. And I don't think that there's, you know, I, I'm always careful to say, I don't think that anybody set out with that kind of intention. I think teachers and educators want to educate all students, but there is a narrow thinking about one right way and what that looks like to learn. And I experienced it with my own kids. I experienced it myself. I don't always learn the way that I was supposed to be taught. That's certainly not true of my son. I didn't mention my son's actually gifted, but he is part of the 80%. So it's a, a conundrum for the school system because they think that, or at least my perception of what they think is that gifted students operate a certain way. And he has the intellectual giftedness, but the way he learns it, for example, he's not detailed. Um, he's also not methodical. He doesn't do things in order. Well, for them, you know, and I can share the story. I don't know. We could, we can jump into recording, but he, um, he was in a, a, a gifted class and it was just him and the teacher because he's young. And, and so there weren't a lot of other peers. And she um, gave him a, a physical problem to solve. So there were stacks of blocks or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. But he was supposed to solve the problem. And true to his nature, he just jumped in and he was failing, right? He was he was doing trial and error. He was experimenting to get to a result. To me, that's a perfectly fine and for him, just right strategy for problem yeah. solving. That's a way I problem solve, right? You just, you try stuff out. There wasn't any problem with failure. There were, you know, it was just an experience. You know, it wasn't, no one was hurt or losing anything when he failed. But the teacher stopped him in his creative process. And said, now, wait a minute, Mason, step back, think about this, form a strategy so you can get it right the first time. Oh, my God. That's what school teaches you to do. That's not right. That's not what entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs don't step back, think about it, get it right the first time. If we all do that as a society, we need some people to do that. And some people are wired to do that. That's fantastic. But that was a tremendous bias that actually interrupted and probably stalled the problem-solving process of my son. And, um, you know, in, in, uh, it was an unspoken way of saying trial and error is actually not the way to do it. And that's part of him. So it's, it's a little chipping away at the self-confidence block. Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of that story reminds me of instances where, um, I mean, it, it kind of happens all throughout school, but the examples I'm thinking of are like in, uh, like in mathematics and stuff where they, they will they will stop you from doing it one way and want you to do it their way and then show your work right. to make sure you're doing it in exactly the yeah. way they show you. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. even if you get the correct answer, if you don't go through their steps, you still get marked yes. down yeah. for it. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of insane. It's wrong. <laughs> I don't believe in that. Yeah. And my son also got, um, he just got his report card back and they don't do, he's in third grade and they don't do, and he actually jumped ahead. He, he skipped second grade. And he's still at the top of his class and they don't do A's, B's and C's. You know, they don't at that grade level. They do O for basically outstanding. A means excellent. And then there's S for satisfactory, which means, you know, you met the standards, but didn't exceed them. And the only, he got O's and A's and everything. The only one he didn't was an S in art. And um, he loves art. And I mean, how is there not excellence across the board for all three grades in art anyways? I mean, I feel like art is totally in the eye of the beholder and aren't we all inner artists, but Right. And I'm not one of those crazy moms that, sorry, crazy moms, but that thinks, you know, everything my kids do is perfect. It's not like that. But come on, like art, third grade, as long as you're trying, doesn't A for effort like really count here? So, and I know he's trying, but he was saying like, art is so hard for me because I don't think about or plan ahead what I want to create. I just jump right in and I figure it out as I go along. But the art teacher is grading them on the ability to probably replicate something or follow instructions. That's only one way of doing art. Yeah. And I don't think Picasso 
became who Picasso is by doing that way of doing art. So it's just, it's, yeah, that's, that's a problem. And now he's, you know, he, we didn't ask him about that. He obviously internalized that because he's the one that said, art is just tricky for me because of these reasons. Well, and, and then, I, and then he's, I think he's, he's a fabulous artist. He's kind of, in a sense, he's handicapping himself by, like you say, like internalizing that yeah. so he's not, not good, good at artist. it because he's not doing yeah. it their way. And yeah. now he's going to put less value in that, even though it could be a beautiful part of his life if he yeah. makes it yeah. his own. Yeah. Right, right, right. So it really, really damaging internal processes and labels that are happening because of the way, I mean, and grades, I've got issue with those too, but um, anyways, but yeah, do you want to get going? Because I feel like we're having all this great conversation and we're not capturing it unless you are recording. Oh yeah, I'm recording. I don't see it recording though. Oh yeah. Oh, well, fabulous. <laughs> okay. Well, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I've, I've been recording since the beginning. I cut out anything okay. in, the, in the very beginning. I'll cut out all the, the stuff with the technical oh, difficulties. Oh, all the crazy but... <laughs> stuff. Got it. Got it. Good, good. Yeah, no, usually there's 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 some good stuff in kind of the chit chat before you actually f- kind of mm-hmm. find your rhythm together and get into something. So, yeah, I like Agreed. to keep that. Um when you're when you're talking about art and how your son likes to to jump into it, I was just thinking my my daughter, she's uh, so I've got a 15-year-old son, he's my oldest, and then I have 11-year-old daughter and a 6-year-old daughter. So my 6-year-old, she um she likes to come to me and say, can you print me some coloring pages of some character? And I'll just, you know, I go to the internet, just search Elsa coloring pages or Supergirl coloring pages. And then she'll, she'll pick something she likes and we'll, we'll print it out. So it fills the sheet and that's what she uses. And this last time she came to me and she says she wants, she wants to make, or she wants to color a picture of a character from the Descendants movies on Disney. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with those? Uh, not too much. But, yeah. Uh, I know Disney's on a lot in our household. Well, the Descendants movies are about like the kids of the Disney villains. And it's like it's okay. musical and all that stuff. Anyway, she wanted to do a picture of one of them dressed up as Supergirl. And I didn't cool. quite I didn't quite understand what she was what was in her head, what her idea was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I said, OK, well, what do you want me to find here? Because I don't I don't know what that means. And she says, OK, let's just find Supergirl. So we found a Supergirl printed it out for her. And then like the next day she showed me her picture and it was Supergirl, but she used like purple and green and she used the colors of one of the characters in this movie. And she said, this is Mal cosplay or dressing up as Supergirl. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, if this had been like, like what you were talking about with how you do it right, that's not how you do it right. Right. That's a picture of Supergirl. You have to color it like Supergirl, somebody might say. But she yeah. like did this weird twisted. This is another character cosplaying as super. It was it blew my mind. I'm like, this is this is this is crazy. <laughs> but it was amazing. Yeah, and and fast forward a couple decades, what we're seeing is problematic. And I see it all the time in my work with companies. So I work with people of all ages and stages of their life and career. But companies are complaining that they don't have enough creative problem solvers. You know, 2020 has dealt us a whole new hand. Right? We've not experienced this before. And that's been true in the workplace as well. People are having to work differently, think differently, act differently, operate differently, even where they're located is different. And companies are saying they don't know what to do when they get off the script. Well, not surprising because anytime they got off the script when they were in school, they got in trouble for it. They got downgraded. They got um, labeled as disordered or disruptive. You know, we got our hands slapped for that. And that only happens so many times before we realize, oh, I'm not going to do that again. And so those are the kids that shut down. They become demotivated. And then not surprisingly, we have a culture of people who I believe were born and are instinctually creative problem solvers, but have really had that beaten out of them. And I don't think it's, I don't think that's the intention of the system. I don't think there's, you know, there's always bad actors everywhere, bad apples, whatever they say, but I don't, I don't think this is the result of, of, bad intentions. It's just a bad result though. And we really need to rethink what it looks like to be successful in schooling, what it looks like to learn and um, to open up our eyes to see that there are multiple pathways to an end result. Well, yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. You you do say that it may not be the intention to, to create uniformity. But 
I don't know. That might not be true. <laughs> I don't well, know. I, do, I actually do think there's an t- intention for uniformity and standardization. I mean, we use the right, word standardization right. all the time in schooling. So that is the intention. What yeah. I don't think the, is intended is the fallout, is the negative consequence and repercussions of standardization. Okay. So, yeah. So, so maybe, maybe some of that would be the intention is not that that this system is so completely incompatible with human nature. We want exactly. humans to, to, to be able to go through this and come out the way we want them. And we think they should be able to. And if they don't, well, our science about it isn't wrong. They're wrong. Something's wrong with them. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's not the system. It must be the child. Right, right. But as I'm sure you're well aware of and, and probably talk about a lot, the, the system was designed for an entirely different society. It was to standardize factory workers. You know, we want these people to come out the other end and all look the same so that they can um, hold the same type of job role. Well, society doesn't look like that anymore. And that's another, I feel like, compelling piece of evidence that we need to rethink this. We need to innovate education to match current society and the needs of that. And there's just this major disconnect between the working world, which is what education is supposed to prepare us for, and what education is actually doing and what education is rewarding. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm just thinking even even during the industrialization era, there was a need. There, there, were, there were two needs there. There weren't, there weren't only a need for good, obedient cogs in the, in the machine, but there mm-hmm. was also a need for creative thinking and entrepreneurship. And so that's... Well, sure. I think I think that they could have gotten both had they not been so heavy on the uh, um, the regimentation and all that kind of stuff. But you know, whatever. Um, so today, That's yeah, right. today we have we're, we're still stuck with this this old model that was never really compatible with us. But our world is not that industrial world anymore. It's much it's much more um, interconnected, and there's so many different types of businesses and business models you know, that, yeah, that, that yeah. people can get into. It's not just factories everywhere. Now it's work from home no. and it's, you know, all kinds of stuff or, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, I, a lot of people are, are starting to now do a lot of very interesting things, just making money in front of their computers. I mean, you look at like YouTube creators, that, that whole industry, it's insane. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. And those YouTube creators, I would bet probably had a rougher time in school because likely they naturally communicate verbally and they learn by talking things out. Um, They're probably very on the spot. They think by the seat of their pants, they're willing to take risks. Well, all of those things are unwelcomed in school, right? I got in trouble all of the time for distracting the people beside of me by talking to them. I was an A student. I, I I was top of my class, but I talked a lot. I mean, thank goodness now I'm rewarded for it, but then I wasn't. And I would talk out before raising my hand. And I wanted to do things in a different way. I didn't want to do the assignment the way it had always been done because it's been done before. But that's not what was seen as positive. But that's look at how those exact characteristics are making people millions on YouTube and by vlogging. So I I just couldn't agree with you more. We need to open up uh, what it looks like to succeed and what is our modeling process for that. Um, and and more than ever, we need agile, creative people. And the great news is human beings are like that out of the gates. You know, it's we're really like that from birth. We're we're prepared for that, but it's it's curtailed by the process of you know the the messages we receive in the first twenty some years of our lives. And I and it's also not surprising that most entrepreneurs, innovator types, uh, barely eke out of you know, high school, and many of them don't go on to um, higher education. They don't do college. But look at how wildly they succeed when basically free to be themselves and to go pretty much counter to the way they learned. Yeah. Um, I I meant to say this a little earlier um, because we we were talking about schools teaching you the correct way to do things. And then we have over the last uh, probably 20 years, we've had a lot of movement, top-down movement, to um, unify how schools do things all across the country here in the U.S. And so not only not only are they taking this 
one size fits all, but now it's like you don't even get a difference in, in different regions. So when you are somebody who's looking for talent and creative people, you're not looking at diversity. You're looking at everybody's the same. So that's that's probably something that you're you're experiencing because because of what you do. Yeah. And I mean, let's talk about grades for a minute. And I'm all about, I mean, if you if you are adding two plus two and you're not getting four, then that's not correct, right? There's there's a, a, a underlying truth there. Well, well there. I, I don't I don't know about that. There there are other ways of thinking we're being told, right? <laughs> Well, there, yeah, there that's, are other ways of a, thinking, but that's Western civilization, white man math. We've got to, we've got to think that there are other. I'm, I'm just, I'm joking. Anyway, go on. Okay, okay, because <laughs> uh, good, because there, there are. I mean, we have to come. Not everything can be relative, right? And and if you're working yeah. a construction job, you can't have relative thinking about the measurements on the the building, right? <laughs> right, right. So. So there are certain things that are right or they are wrong, and they need to be marked as such. But when we get to grading, again, I think the grading system is heavily biased by the things that we value. So rather than being um, based in truth and fact, it's more you're getting a better grade because these are the things that society values more from students or values less from students. Not always what's right or what's wrong. Or you're getting this grade because the way we're teaching you works with the way that you learn. Therefore, it's easier for you to succeed or vice versa. But, you know, I could be more on board with grades if grades were actually predictive of job fit or job success. But we all know the smartest person is not always the most successful. You know, you can pass all the tests and get all the perfect grades, but I've worked with hundreds of them, maybe thousands at this point of people that might have been valedictorians top of their class and may not be the high performer on the team. They may hate their jobs. They may get fired for underperformance. So. I'm not arguing against learning and and smarts and intelligence. That's a factor. And of course, if you want to go be a surgeon, you need to go to medical school, right? So there's a prerequisite of learning and skills. But we have this like overemphasis and this bias as a society that if you're intelligent, then, well, sure, you're you're obviously going to be successful in life. And that's simply not true. And all of the research and evidence we have we have really points to there being much more predictive aspects to where a person thrives than just the intelligence or grades um, component. Well, yeah, and, and probably one of those. Um, and I was poking around on your website, so I, I, I'm sure you have something to say about this. One of one of those things, arguably in many in many fields, is probably more important than IQ would be EQ, emotional intelligence. Yeah, I think emotional intelligence. So I talk about all three parts of the mind. So society typically only knows about two because that's what society values and that's what society talks about. So the three parts of the mind are cognition, what you know, which is your skills and intelligence, experience and training. That, of course, changes over time. It's not fixed. And as we just said, it's really about 50% or so accurate in predicting uh, performance or success. Then there's, like you just mentioned, affect, the affective part of the mind, which is our emotions, which houses our uh, motivations, our preferences, our social styles, and also the big P word, personality. And we'll come back to that to revisit your question. The final part of the mind, which sadly is lesser known and not talked about, even though I would argue is actually one of the most critical, if not the most critical, is something called conation or the conative part of the mind, which is your how. So if we think of there's what you know, why you do things, but then there's how you do things. And conation are the instincts in our brain that drive how we take action to solve problems, how we instinctually get results. And if you're saying, well, how come I've never heard of this before? Is this some new faddish concept? It's not. In fact, Aristotle talked about thinking, feeling, and what he called the will or volition. And it's entirely distinct from the other two parts of the mind. And it's the only part of the mind that is completely unchanging. So what you're motivated by and passionate about will change over time. The skills you have, um, you know, the things you know will absolutely change over time. But how you are wired to take action. Now, you may not always have the freedom to do it, but how you're wired to take action when you're free to do it your way never changes throughout one's lifetime. 
And so that's what I'm talking about when I'm getting at this piece of school only teaches you 20% of kids because there's a valued way of learning, which is to be detailed, to be procedural, risk mitigative, and conceptual versus hands-on. If you're a child that's a bottom liner, shortcuts, um, innovative risk taker, and tactile learner, you are actually proven to be at higher risk of being what I would say misdiagnosed with ADD and ADHD. You are much more likely to be considered disordered, disruptive, and it's all because of how you problem solve. Okay. But coming back to what you were originally asking me, EQ matters because it's still a whole person. I, I'm never arguing for um, swinging the pendulum so far in the other direction that we look at how people are wired to operate and then not look at the other parts of the mind. But we need to look at it as a whole. So I think that every child, hopefully we can start there, but because a lot of adults didn't get this as a child, we should really help all, all folks of, in society yeah. learn what do they know uniquely? What's their level of expertise or understanding that, that they have that maybe others don't? Why do they get off out of bed in the morning? What makes them get off the couch? What are they passionate and excited about? And of course, that means, you know, being sensitive to that and others, recognizing emotions and the value system of others. That's a unifying factor. It's important that we come around those things and, and really come together on those things. But then lastly, how do you um, contribute naturally to the world? And when people figure out their what, their why, and their how and bring that together, that's where I see people actually experiencing both success, but fulfillment, which yeah. is beyond just success, right? They're right. really in that sweet spot of life. And we are not teaching kids to discover that about themselves in education. And even worse, we're telling them that that parts of that equation are wrong about them. Wow. That's uh thank you for laying that all out for me. I mean, yeah, cognition sure. I was familiar with. Um mm -hmm. affect, not by name, but mo emotions, motivations, personality, mm -hmm. preference, of course I was mm -hmm. familiar with. But this idea of of conation, just how do you spell that? C O N A T I O N. Okay, that's how I spell it. The company that has been doing um really leading the charge and the research on the conative part of the brain is Colby Corp. K-O-L-B-E. I use their assessments as often as I can with my clients because um, of the over 800 plus psychological assessments out there. There are many. Colby's the only one that actually measures this part of the brain. Hmm. So it's pretty incredible. And because it's unchanging, it's, it's predictive and powerfully so. So we can actually prescribe and predict the behaviors of an individual based off of this and the environments in which they would thrive because of this. Again, people get really hung up on personality and it's consistently debunked, but yet it's still perpetuated. Yeah. Um, okay. So this, this, this sounds like a big part of what you do with your consulting business. Is that right? You're, you're trying to help companies find people that fit within their puzzle pieces, if you will. Yeah. So like I mentioned before, I work with a lot of different people at different ages and stages of life and business. On the company side, I help people first companies increase their engagement, productivity, and profits by harnessing employees' untapped talents. And it's exactly that. You know, It's helping employers see this huge potential um, and, and capability that their workforce has, but is often understood and therefore can't be maximized or utilized. But on the individual level, I love helping people experience the fulfillment we just talked about by owning their strengths and finding their fit. And when companies are, you know, looking and, um, you know, fostering those all three parts of the mind in, in the workforce, when the employees know how to advocate for themselves based off of all three parts of the mind, that's where everything comes together. And it strikes this incredible win-win between the people and the workers, you know, and the company. And people often think that if employees win, then the company loses, or if the company wins, then the employees, it's mm -hmm. at the expense of the employee. And that's simply not true. Um, they can absolutely work together to both win. And honestly, though, even though I spend a lot of time in, in the company, um, realm and, and in the, um, workforce place, 
I would so much rather work myself out of a job with adults by teaching every single child how they're naturally wired to compute and how very capable, perfectly capable they are yeah. so they can successfully advocate for themselves through life and not get us in this mess we have. I mean, burnout in the workforce is dismal. Um, anxiety, depression, just the mental wellness issues we have. And, and a lot of that is around work. Um, I mean, it's a hot mess. So to me, that means what we've got going is not working. Career coaching, career counseling is really not working. You know, And I, I want to reset. And I think we should reset at, at the earliest age possible so we can get out ahead of and prevent these things that keep happening to us when we get um, finally get to our careers. And then we don't know what our strengths are. We don't know where we fit in. Companies might have all the best intentions, but don't know how to hire properly, don't know how to develop people properly. And honestly, unless or until people understand that there are three parts of the mind, not just two, it's not all about skills and personality. It's also about operational style. That's the only time in which I think we're really going to accomplish what we're looking to as a society. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. So tell me, how did how did you get into doing this business? What's sort of your origin story of <laughs> growing up? And uh, did you grow up in Pennsylvania where you're at now? Or Yeah, so I my home is uh, a, about a mile from the home I spent most of my childhood in. So I didn't go very far, um, at least not as a permanent residence. I did go to school in Chicago. And it all started for me in sixth grade uh, to really go way back. Um, as I've mentioned, Colby Corp uh, is the only company that assesses this part of the mind. My dad was a part of a entrepreneur uh, coaching program. It's called Strategic Coach. And to this day, because uh, this was decades ago, uh, to be part of the program, you have to take a Colby assessment. And he thought it was so cool and so different. So when he came back from that program, which also happened in Chicago, he told my sister and myself, we were, you know, in grade school in sixth grade. And he said, um, this is really neat. I think you should take the youth assessment. So I did. And even as a sixth grader, I just knew something was special about this insight. It was different. It was deep. It was so spot on. And it was just, it was very encouraging. There's no weaknesses. It's all strengths because it's measuring something that can't change. So to call it bad or weak, you know, would be pretty, pretty depressing because you can't change it. So it's all positive and it's all about how I do my thing. Um, so fast forwarding through high school and college, I had this clear insight about myself and I knew how I best operated and how to advocate for that, how to put myself into situations and work with other people in order to be successful. I also had a sense for what I wanted to do, where I fit in in the grander scheme in my career. And I watched my friends, very intelligent. I mean, we went to uh, a very academic, rigorous college. And, you know, you had to do very well in academics to get to that place. So smart people, motivated people who had absolutely no idea what they were supposed to do with their life. And many of them to this day still haven't figured that out. And I contrasted um, my insight and experience with theirs, realizing that this piece of insight was really central to me having a confident and clear path which versus their very anxious and overwhelming path. And um, one more quick story um, that really just sealed the deal for me and feeling passionate about making sure people understand this about themselves was when I was a junior in college, uh, the right thing to do, you know, what they say you should do is go to the career center, do your appointments. You can start thinking about how you're going to train from college to career. So I didn't just do that. I made the appointment with the director because I was going to really do it up. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right. So I made the appointment with the career director. They put me through their battery of assessments, of course, all personality based. So they were more about what do you value? You know, do you want to work with people or do you value making money or having an impact or social causes, those kinds of things. But by the way, your passions get you in the right industry. They don't get you in the right job. So um, went through all of that. And at the end, I met with the career director and she says to me, well, you would make a great, you know, in my brain, my, I have the drum rolling, you know, in my head and I'm thinking, oh, it's coming, it's coming. And she said, career, or, I'm sorry, event planner. And nothing's wrong with being an event planner. Um, but if you know me, 
it's all I can do to plan my kids' birthday parties. You know, I, I am not gifted in any way as an event planner, and I have no interest in being an event planner. So something went terribly wrong with their assessment, it sounds like. <laughs> something went terribly <laughs> wrong, but but it gets better or worse, depending on how you feel about the story. So I remember on the walk home, I called my parents. I was so upset. It, it was just It was just all wrong. I had built up that this was going to be, you know, so even more clarifying and helpful. And, and, and it was just speaking to the brokenness of the system. But I went back to my apartment. I didn't say anything to anybody about it because it just made me mad, frankly. It wasn't helpful. But since we were all doing it, uh, I knew that my roommate uh, had had a, a her own appointment, you know, a few weeks later. And I was doing my homework, sitting on our couch in our apartment. And she walks through the door and closes the door and sort of leans on it behind her. And she has this big binder in her hands. And again, I knew she had been at the at the career center. So I said, you know, hey, Erin, how did it go? And uh, she has this high pitched, uh, wonderfully sweet voice. And she said, well, I don't know. They told me I should be, wait for it, an event planner. And she throws down this big binder that says something like, you know, how to do event planning. And let me just tell you, she could not be more opposite than I am. We don't do things the same way. I love her to death as a friend, but we would probably drive each other insane if we actually had to work together or did a school project together. Yeah. There's there's nothing similar in our how uh, or our operating style. And that that was um that was really the defining moment of something needs to change. This is not working. We are not teaching people appropriately to understand themselves and find their fit. And that just follows that how are companies going to know to do that if people don't know how to do that for themselves? And I actually started my company right out of, after I got out of school. And I focused first on helping those that were transitioning from college to career and figuring that out, um, you know, getting the right kind of career path. And then it grew into helping people, again, at all sides of the equation. Wow. Um, I was going to say, it sounds like maybe that company was uh, trying to get people to become event planners. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but it, it, was, it, was the, um, it was the career center at the college. So maybe they, they had a, oh, right, um, right. You okay. know, openings they weren't able to fill for event planners or right. something. And maybe there was something in there. I don't know why that was the popular recommendation, but it, it seemed to be so. Um, and, and it is a hundred percent true story. So have you, have you and your friend taken this Colby Corp testing? I, I assume you have. And, and how does it, how do you guys compare? So I have that particular friend has not interestingly okay. enough. Uh, so I can't tell you scientifically. I just know. And I've, I've interpreted thousands of these results. So, um, though it's always, you know, dangerous to make assumptions. We know what assumptions do to all of us or make guesses, but I've got a pretty good sense, um, you know, and I know her really well. And I can just tell you, we just don't operate the same way. The way we deal with information, the way we deal with process, the way we deal with risk, the way we deal with tangibles is just not the same. So yeah. And we don't do, we don't do the same things in life either. So let me ask you this. Um, something I'm curious about as you're talking about People figuring out, learning more about themselves, about their own strengths so that they are better at advocating for themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what challenges, what challenges have you seen in the corporate world being a woman versus, well, you're not a man, so you can't really speak to that, <laughs> but I'm yeah. sure that, that you can, you know, you're, you're aware of differences there, probably more than a typical man is. And I'm just curious how learning about yourself and how to advocate yourself has sort of given you a leg up in meeting some of those specific challenges. Yeah, well, I'll tell you from my perspective, I choose not to focus on those differences. You know, has that impacted me one way or the other? I'm sure. Uh, but I like to focus on what I can control, which is how I see the world. And, um, you know, it's it's unfortunate if someone sees me differently because of my gender or race or background or anything like that. But I, I really like to, I mean, true to, to what I preach, I like to focus on my abilities, my capabilities, and, um, and really, really, you know, put the emphasis there. So to your question, how can it ever hurt a person to be clearer about how they work most effectively? And those environments 
in which they thrive. So no matter who you are, no matter what kinds of challenges you face socially, economically, um, you know, in the workplace, it can only help you to have more clarity. And, and by doing so, when you get more awareness about yourself, in turn, you have more awareness about other people. Because when you see, oh, I have this whole other dimension, well, that means all these interactions I'm having with these other people, they have that dimension too. Because there's a, an incredible amount of what I would call unnecessary workplace drama, where people who simply have a different way of operating see it as a personal assault. So for example, I um, have worked with a, a, a manager and a direct report. The direct report is wired to um, go deep, do the detail. And that um, direct report was tasked with writing a proposal. And um, he spent hours and hours and hours writing this document, pouring himself into it, getting all the facts, you know, getting the wording just right. The manager... She was wired to be a bottom liner, cut to the chase, get to the point, move on, right? She valued detail and research um, and a market analysis, but she did not need the detail. So what happened was the direct report gave this very detailed, you know, um, hours and hours of work worth proposal to the manager. And what happened? The manager skimmed it, put it down, moved on with life. I see in that scenario a different need for information, a different level of information gathering. It wasn't a judgment on the value of the information. It's a, it's just, it's a needs-based, what I need in this moment to move forward. But what happened was the direct report felt, you know, it was personal, right? My manager doesn't care enough to at least read the report. Um, my manager doesn't respect me. You know, the, there's, she doesn't value my work, right? So we jump to those value statement. We jump to the affective part of the mind, if you will, a lot of times where just having an understanding that there's this whole other aspect to human relationships and activities is, is taking place. Um, I think we could solve a lot of these conflicts that happen both in the workplace and even in our families. You know, mm -hmm. how many times has somebody gotten um, mad in a family because um, you know, a person borrowed something from them and didn't put it back in just the right spot, right? Or, um, you know, I'll pick you up at five and they showed up at 515. Well, if you have an individual in that family that's wired to be very process driven and to do things in order and have uh, a thing for everything and everything in its place, and you have somebody else in that family that just doesn't operate that way, it doesn't mean that they're meaning to disrespect the the system of that other person. They just, it just doesn't occur to them. They just don't have that kind of need. So, uh, you know, it, it, it just, this is always helpful. I've never encountered a situation where understanding this, seeing the whole human hasn't been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely sounds really helpful. I'm, I don't know. You're, you're probably not familiar with this, but I, when I was 15 at my first job, uh, it was a fast food place in a mall food court and the owner was also the manager and she was there a lot. And so she became a bit of a mentor to me mm -hmm. uh, on things. We'd have conversations, we'd talk, you know, she was just another adult role model in my life. But one of the things she introduced me to is called human dynamics. Is this something you've ever heard of? Probably along the way. I hear about a new assessment a lot. Um, some are better than others, but I usually, sure. um, I do a lot of research on them and, and actually read the statistical reports and sort of look under the hood, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this I, I think, um, this was something that was, I think in their words, they would say discovered by a lady named Sandra Siegel back okay. in the 60s or 70s. And she started this, pretty much this company to uh, for herself to develop this idea of personality dynamics and there's specific personality dynamics. Everybody has one. And it sounds to me, it sounds to me based on what I know about that and based on what you're talking about, cognition, affection, and conation, it, it seems to me like a lot of it is saying the same kinds of things just in different ways. No, no, it actually isn't. And I'm looking this up as you're talking. I don't have time to to find it. I mean, just the fact that she's using the word personality, that falls very clearly in the affective camp. And well, it's, no it's, per yeah, it's, it's personality dynamic. Um, anyway, she, she started um, 
she started a business that eventually went around to different corporations and they were doing trainings on this sort of thing to help them better understand employees and different, different relationships within companies. Yeah. Um, Yeah. In that way, there's definitely similarity. Mm -hmm. What, what I find sort of the dirty little secret of personality assessment that um, honestly, the assessment, the assessments themselves are not always forthcoming about is that again, personality changes over time. So those kinds of assessments have an expiration date. They, the insight doesn't last forever. And so that limits our ability to use that insight to make future decisions. So for example, I live in Pittsburgh. The weather's all over the place. I think last week we were grilling outside. It was like 80 degrees. I had to bring back out the short sleeve shirts and shorts. Yesterday, it looked like a blizzard outside. So the weather's all over the place. And each day, what do I do? I watch the morning weather report to decide what to wear that day, knowing that that weather report is good for about 24 hours. And I'm going to need to watch it again tomorrow to make a different decision about what I'm going to wear tomorrow. It would be absurd for me to decide what to wear today based off of the weather forecast two years ago right? That's silly. The information's old. It's expired. It's not predictive like that. It's, it's not, um, again, especially it had, it wouldn't have predicted the 70 degree weather we had a few weeks ago, but that's like, that's what it's like when we use personality instruments to make decisions two, four, five, ten 10 years down the road. And people may say, well, I'm not making decisions that far ahead, but I see most people not consistently retake those assessments in their company or personally, which is really how you should be using them. Because again, they expire most, if not all, um, I haven't researched all of them, but all of the personality assessments that I've encountered expire in a year or less. So that means your decisions around them are also, or should expire in a year or less. But if you're using those kinds of instruments in hiring, Um, Most companies I know aren't intending to fire that person or change things up after the first year, right? They want them to be there for years. Um, Or if you're promoting somebody, or oftentimes we go through these uh, assessments, even in the context of like a team building exercise, but then people carry those labels for a long time, you know, oh, I'm a high D or I'm an EJIC or whatever. So um, we got to be careful to just recognize when this kind of data expires, and I, I find that's a real pitfall around the personality instrument world, um, is that things are assumed to stick around uh, for a lot longer. Um, but that's 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 just not the case. And and all of this is supported by um, very clear data. No, no, and I no, of course I believe you. Um, this um, this human dynamics, and I'm not trying to pitch this or anything. This is this is just something that. I learned about very early on and it, we each have, and they use the phrase personality dynamic, but it, she she compartmentalizes it into mental, emotional, and physical centerings in people. Like Mm -hmm. I said, it's, it's, you know, some of it may be semantics, but it's just the jargon that developed, you know, over the decades in this particular organization. But it, there is something about each of us that doesn't change. And that's, that's our particular and, they use the phrase your personality dynamic, but it's not just about personality. It's about all of these different things. Anyway, it just, it just sounds similar and maybe there is some connection there. And that just happens to be something I'm a bit more familiar with, but anyway, it's, it's not really important, but. Yeah. Well, I think, um, yeah. So, um, sometimes personality assessments, I would say sort of trip over cognitive, um, instincts in that, Oftentimes we value things that come naturally to us. And so we know personality assessments are asking about values and preferences, right? Um, and, and cognitive, the cognitive assessment, the Colby assessments are, are measuring how you instinctually do something, whether you value it or learned it or not. So it's possible that a person who, like myself, who is wired to be very exacting and specific and detailed, if you ask me, do you prefer more detail or less detail? I'm going to say, well, I prefer more detail, but it's because I just operate that way naturally. However, it doesn't always work like that. And it doesn't always work in reverse. So for example, also true of me, if you ask me, do I value organization? Do I want to be organized? Do I prefer to be organized? Do I like to be organized? My answer to all of those statements would be yes. But if you 
zoom out of the zoom call and look at my desk, (laughs) you can tell that I don't always operate in an organized way. No. So our values um, inform our preferences, but our instincts inform our actions. And we don't always do those things that we value. So for example, that, that, um, that scenario that I shared before about the manager and direct report, the man, that manager very well may have valued information gathering, research, market analysis, but she knew she wasn't the one to do it. Right. Yeah. So that's where I think, um, cause sometimes people say, well, this seems to kind of say the same thing or ta- or stumble on the same thing. And I think sometimes they stumble on it, but there's two things you want to figure out about any assessment. Um, and anyone listening, it doesn't matter how you're using the information for me. This is just my litmus test of any good assessment or just something I would want to know, um, before I would use this data to make life decisions. One is something called test retest reliability. So this basically means, um, when does the test expire? You know, um, how often do I have to retake it or when does the information go bad? So for the weather forecast, for example, the reliability would be 24 hours because if I retook the assessment in tw- the next day, the results would be different. Whereas for my name, if you asked me what my name was when I was five years old, and if you asked me what my name is when I'm 105 years old, it would be Emily, right? So that has 100% test retest reliability or 1.0. Uh, for a lifetime, right? It, it, it never expires. That's really important because again, um, for example, like StrengthsFinders, StrengthsFinders is really popular. It expires in about two months. It's it's very in flux. Myers-Briggs, super popular, expires in about a month. So that's all over the place. You know, you're not an EJ, EJNC or I always lose track of them for very long. Hmm. Um, that's that's hard for me, right? And And I do career coaching and there's no way I would personally ever advise a young person to make decades worth of decisions off of something that will be old news before they even graduate from high school, right? See, see the, see the disconnect there. Yeah. So that's the first thing to ask about. And by the way, Colby, um, after 20 years, 86% of people have the same result after 20 years, that's unheard of in the assessment community. Most assessments don't even bother to test after a year because they've already failed. The threshold's at 80%. The second thing to ask is something called predictive validity. Basically, does it predict the future? Is it accurate in telling us, you know, what this is about? So, um, for example, my favorite color would have no predictive validity over my ability to be, um, uh, a good worker, right? Unless it was to, to, um, categorize crayons, you know, in color. So, you know, there's all these arbitrary things that wouldn't be at all predictive. And interestingly enough, personality is just consistently shown to not have that predictive validity. It's just not all that accurate. Um, again, to throw out an example, predictive index has the word predictive in the name. So one would think, wow, this instrument is going to tell me, um, a lot about the future. Sadly, according to its own data, it's um, 17 to 19% on its best day um, accurate um, in doing just that. So it's, again, I, I sort of, I like to look under the hood. I really like to gut check what the assessment companies are saying, particularly in the marketing material. Um, I'm not, I'm not wanting to demonize anything. I think there's, you know, I'm all about self-awareness and insight, but well, we got to use it properly. Yeah, you know, yeah, we, we a tool, a tool. We're talking about humans here, and there's some big decisions that are made around the, these kinds of assessments that impact people's livelihoods, careers, pay, um, self worth. And I just don't take it lightly, you know. And and not all assessments are created equal, so it's our responsibility, particular from the employer side, to carefully choose um, the kinds of data we're going to introduce into these decisions. Yeah. I know, I know you've got to go soon. I'm just curious though, how has, how has your uh, business done this year with, with everything going on? Yeah. Thanks for asking. So when, um, everything hit the fan, it was, it was a little, it was a little rough there for a minute. Um, because I had had a lot of engagements that were in person that were booked, um, or about to be, um, I do a lot of speaking and training and they involve travel. They involved in-person gatherings. And, you know, when this first started, everybody said that um, just sit tight for two to four weeks, right? I think everybody was just on hold 
And we all naively thought, you know, in like four weeks, this thing's going to sort itself out and we can all just resume. So when we were on a collective pause, my business was on a pause. And that was a little scary because no one was making decisions. No one knew what it was going to look like. No one, I don't think, was really hurting too, too bad. I mean, we didn't didn't feel all the impact quite yet. So that was hard. Um, Then by about May... I think people started to realize this is not short term. We're in this for the long haul. It could, it will easily be months, maybe years. You know, it's my belief that we're going to be dealing with the fallout of COVID into 2020. And people realize work is going to permanently look differently. You know, the work from home movement, those kinds of. And thankfully, even though some of those were tough realizations, the fact that we just got some certainty um, really, really helped people to start making new decisions. And then there was a, a new openness to working virtually. Uh, and that has been a total game changer. So I went from, you know, also being in that collective pause moment and really having no idea which way to go, um, to actually having, um, two incredibly busy, um, wonderful last quarters of the year. Wow. So, um, thankfully something we're, we're doing is really resonating. And I'm really grateful for technology for enabling us to still connect as human beings, even though we can't be physically present with one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's been a it's been a wonderful thing seeing the adoption of a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, not so much for schools, though. I think I think when yeah. schools went to that model, they took one of the saving graces, the social aspect of school, and totally mm-hmm. cut it out. <laughs> Yeah. And like we started, if you already have a broken system and then you add extra complications, it's not going to make it better. You know, although I do know some of that 80 percent, that's that majority population that didn't do well with typical instruction of sitting and listening. Some of them did better in the virtual schooling model because they could um, they could move around. You know, they they had their own space to do school. They could take breaks. They could fidget um, probably. Some they of them, could yeah. fidget. Yeah. And they could also get school done with quickly and then, you know, go out and play and, and do other things. I think what made that, I'll just, I'll speak from my own experience. I think what made that just really tough was kids were schooling from home. Parents were trying to work from home. Nobody was prepared for that, right? We couldn't bring in outside help because everybody was quarantining, at least in our state. And it was more the mashup of all of these things that needed to happen within the same four walls. And for my kids being really young, they were not able to be independent. So yeah, I, I think I think the interesting thing though out of all of that with virtual schooling is that different students were advantaged and different students were disadvantaged than the traditional classroom. But on the whole, all students lost out on the social aspect, and I couldn't agree with you more. That's really damaging, particularly at a a child level. Well, all right, Emily. Thank you so much. This was really fun. It was uh, interesting to hear a lot about this stuff. I'm going to check out that Colby Corp, uh, probably their website or whatever. I'm I'm kind of interested in taking that and seeing what my results are. So, Yeah, well, I'd love to help you through that, or anyone listening, love to help you through that. Um, that's one of the things that I do is help coach through the insights of that assessment and apply them to your life and work. Um, an interesting fact is that we can actually assess kids as young as three. Wow. I've done it with my own kids at the age of six and four, um, or actually both of them did it when they were four. Um, it's, it's a game changer for parents to actually know how your child does life, which by the way is, um, likely not the way you do life because it's right. not genetic. It's yeah. not passed down. So to understand that can also save your family from a lot of unnecessary fight and conflict. And um, and you can really be positioned to advocate for your kids until they're able to do so for themselves. Yeah. So anybody can reach out. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I think I mentioned the podcast before I host Mothers of Misfits. So that's at mothersofmisfits.com. Um, if anybody's interested in the work that I do with companies, that happens at launchconsulting.io. But honestly, just Google Emily Melius. Hopefully you'll find me and I'm happy to help you through these tools that we already talked about and, um, you know, glean, glean the best insights so you can make your life better. And I'll, I'll link all that. I'll put all that in the show notes and whatnot, as well as awesome. sort of a topic list I've been, I've been tracking as we've gone on. Um, yeah, I'll link to, to your websites and um, I'll check out that podcast. I'm very interested. So. That'd be awesome. And I actually have some folks in mind that might, um, that I've had the pleasure of interviewing that might also be a great connection for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. All right. Uh, Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you.
It's nice to know you. <laughs> nice to know you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Okay, bye. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.